0: Man, Jay, I am still in awe that anyone sat down and read all of Marvel Comics. Oh, I know, right, Miles? Douglas Wolk is a phenomenon. A master of continuity, which actually leaves me wondering. Uh, Hey, Douglas. What's up? Uh, So we know Marvel continuity is kind of a mess.
1: Retcons, errors, all of that.
0: So now
2: that you've read all of it, what's the biggest wrinkle you found? Oh, there's some doozies, but... My favorite is a giant mess that involves uh, the time Doctor Doom teamed up with Henry Kissinger, the X-Men's adventure in the Southwest that led to Spider-Man accidentally flying to the moon, oh, and, uh, of course, the battle between Mephisto and the rock band Kiss. About a hundred issues in all. Out of continuity? No, um, all of that happened between two panels where Ben Grimm is trying to hail a cab on page 7 of Fantastic Four number 176.
0: WHAT?!
1: I'm Jay Editon.
0: And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did.
1: Welcome to episode 345 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera.
0: And welcome to a guest most impressive, Douglas Walk. Douglas, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me.
1: So Douglas is a long, long, long time friend of the podcast, I would say since before its, its inception. And you may also have heard his voice, if you're a comics podcast connoisseur, on uh, Doomcast as the voice of Lotvaria. Indeed. But he is also, and more relevantly, a critic and journalist and author— most recently of the upcoming book, All of the Marvels, which, much like this podcast, is basically what it says on the tin. So you sat down and you read all of Marvel comics.
2: Not in one sitting, but yeah, uh, all of Marvel's in-universe superhero comics from 1961 to, well, technically 2017, but actually I didn't stop there. I just kind of kept going.
1: What makes someone decide to do that? What, how, in, in, in what Paradigm? Do you wake up one day and go, okay, this is the, this is it. This is the day that I start just working my way through the entire canon.
2: In one sense, it's it's a stunt. It's Evil Knievel jumping over fifty cars. It's uh, you know it, it is a trick to give myself a hook to hang something on. It also came from my son. When I started reading comics with him, he announced to me, "Hey, Dad, I want to read all of Marvel's." superhero comics in continuity order not in the not in the order they were published in the order the events happened to the characters i was like okay this is a chance for us to bond this will probably last a week but it'll be a fun thing we do together and you know 3 months later he'd read everything up to 1968 and was like you know i'm much more interested in the modern crossover era dad can we you know skip to civil war well, yes yes kid we absolutely can do that And around then I started thinking, what would happen if I read all of them? What would the shape of these 27,000 comics, this half-million-page-plus story, serialized over 60 years, written and drawn by people working on a thing so big that not any of them have read the entire thing, what would that look like? What would it look like as as a shape? And then... Five years later, here I am, a broken man. (laughs) Well, I'm really excited to talk about
0: how you became so broken. But before we move on, I have to ask about that part from the cold open. Seriously? About 100 issues between two panels of Fantastic Four? It
2: sure is. Uh, They all have to fit in somewhere. That is the only moment in a span of about 40 issues of Fantastic Four where everybody has their powers— the team is fully together, and they're all on Earth. And the Fantastic Four continue to show up in their kind of you know, platonic form, Reed, Sue, Ben, Johnny, fully powered up here and there, and there's just no breathing room in at all in that story. And so somebody came up with the idea that, like, yeah, in the middle of that page of 176, let's have a great big break there while Ben is hailing a cab. I mean, I know it takes a long time to get a hold of a cab sometimes, but wow! Yeah, uh, I believe that actually uh, includes the entire sequence where uh, Phoenix first appears, actually.
1: So so looking at that, you know, obviously you're building on some prior sources, and there are people who've done a lot of continuity picking. Oh god, yeah. What was the process of assembling all of that? Like, do you now basically have a reading order for, for Marvel that's everything in continuity order?
2: Uh, Ah, no, 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 I don't. Uh, I did not read all the Marvel stuff in continuity order. I did not read it all in publication order. I didn't read it in any order. I grazed. I would, you know, read a little stack of Spider Woman and then think, oh, I feel like reading some romance comics. I feel like reading some comics that have Madame Mask in them. I feel like reading some comics that George Tuska drew today. So I had a spreadsheet with everything, and I just kept going until it was all done. I saved Thunderbolts for dessert. I knew that that was going to be one I would like, and I was like, I'm saving that for last. And on the other hand, there were a few things that are like, I'm just going to have to knuckle down and get through this. There was a period a few years ago where I locked myself into an apartment in New York City and really didn't let myself come out until I'd read all of The Punisher.
0: That sounds... I just have to. That sounds so punishing. I'm so sorry. It,
2: It... It sure was. Um, I made it through.
1: So conversely, one of the things that we've found in our much, much smaller scale completism around X-Men is that there are a lot of hidden gems that kind of slip through the cracks of collections and major series. Is there anything that you stumbled across that really stuck out to you?
2: I mean, there's a bunch of things. Master of Kung Fu is not exactly obscure at this point because there's a Shang-Chi movie coming out.
1: My mom's very excited about that.
2: Yeah, it was out of print for a solid 30, 35 years after the series ended, for various reasons, some of them very good reasons, but there's, it's it's just an amazing series. I, I love that comic, as difficult and problematic and messy and cringy as it sometimes is. And then there are other things. There's a Man-Thing series from 1998 that's never been reprinted that's absolutely gorgeous. It's Liam Sharp at the absolute top of his game. Uh, There are things like, there's a Living Mummy series from 1974 or so that's terrible but also great. Uh, It it has what might be Marvel's first same-sex couple. It has some amazing psychedelic art. It has some like prose text interludes. And it's a mess and it doesn't make any sense at all, but it's trying so hard. I love
0: that. Big fan of anything that's earnest, whether it's successful or not, like, that counts for a lot right there. So, you were talking about covering Master of Kung Fu and and stuff like that, and I noticed in, in the book, uh, the way it's structured, you'll focus on a given, I don't want to say series, but sort of section of the Marvel Universe, and look at some highlight issues uh, of that. How did you find yourself focusing on the titles that you ended up covering? Was that just the ones you liked the most or the ones that seemed most significant? Little of column A, little of column B, little of lots of other columns I'm not thinking of right now? Um,
2: it, so the book came together in a really strange way. Uh, what the, the finished version of the book is the second version of it I wrote. I wrote a first version. It didn't really work. I finished it, I turned it in, and then I was like, you know, no. This is this is not a book that can connect to an audience the way I want it to, to connect. It's not entertaining the way I want it to be entertaining. I, I ended up scrapping like 85% of the thing and starting over. And uh, so there's, there's a lot of chapters that got written and then thrown out. There are also some things I tried to write and couldn't really do justice to, what I ended up doing is I, I wanted to pick a few of the big names. So there's there's a big X-Men section, there's a big Spider-Man section. Then there were some things that were just like, this is this is a particular thing I care about. There's a big old Master of Kung Fu section. There is a chapter on Squirrel Girl and Ms. Marvel, because I love those series two pieces. I wanted to have one I wanted to have one section that focused on a big event because events are so much the body of what Marvel has been doing for the last 15-20 years. So there's one that focuses on Dark Rain, which is just wonderful. And it's a wonderful mess, but it's a wonderful mess. And then between those, uh, just to break them up, there are littler chapters that are about specific cross-sections of things. Like there's one on pop music within the Marvel Universe and pop musicians. There's... There's a short chapter on monsters. There's a short chapter on what happened in March of 1965, which is, like, that moment is the moment when you can see the machine's pieces click into place where all of Marvel's superhero comics start talking to each other and having effects on each other all the time. So stuff like that.
1: So you go into the sum in the book... But you've been a Marvel comics reader since, yeah, obviously long before this project. This this wasn't you saying, "I'm gonna start reading Marvel. I'm gonna start with all of it." Um, you were you were a, subscribed, you know, back in the day, and on and off. And now I know we're attached very closely to a comic shop, so obviously you're still still reading and recommending. What's the Marvel universe as it resets to in your mind? What's what is your default state of Marvel?
2: My Marvel universe doesn't have a default. What I love about it is that it keeps changing. What I really love about it is the idea that the same characters don't have to do the same thing forever. I love it when characters' stories end, which they don't do very often, but I love when one character will hand a baton to another one, will change, and then not change back. There are lots of wonderful comics from when I was a kid, but they're still right there on my shelf. They're still right there on Marvel Unlimited. I can read them anytime I want. I don't want it to go back to the way it used to be. I don't want there to be a school for young mutants in Westchester with Professor X running it anymore. That's that's the past. That's how it used to be. Surprise me, you know. That's that's what I really want to see. Do you have a favorite example of one of those major changes that ended up sticking? Ooh, um I mean, you know, the Krakoan X-Men is sticking for now, at least. Peter Parker graduated from high school. Then he graduated from college. He's growing up. We may see him, at least temporarily, stopping being Spider-Man for a little while. I would be perfectly happy if he just kind of like stepped down, retired. I'd be happy to see Miles being Spider-Man for the foreseeable future. I'd be happy to see whoever's after Miles 20 years down the line.
0: So, speaking of things that have changed a great deal, and that in fact led into the Krakoan era, obviously we're an X-Men podcast, and so I'm fascinated to hear about, I guess, your take on X-Men as a part of the Marvel Universe as a whole throughout its history. Yeah,
1: we're, we're very much sort of in in the trenches here, Looking looking at everything under a microscope, what do the X-Men look like from 500 feet?
2: The X-Men are fascinating from 500 feet. I mean, they're a story about identity that doesn't totally map onto any kind of identity, but they're a story about what that means and how that meaning changes over time. What it means to be different somehow from what other people around you are maybe like, what it means to find a community that you can belong to that will have your back that and that you can be part of, what it means to have, you know, to realize that the world is terrible for you and wonder what you might have to sacrifice or what you might have to give up to make it right for yourself and for the rest of your people, and also to, you know, Imagine what would happen if the world, being terrible, pushed one of you or a lot of you too far. That's a theme that doesn't go away. That's a thing that keeps changing over time, and X-Men keeps diving into that and keeps engaging with that, and it's amazing, and it does it in so many different ways.
0: So, I know for us, um, we certainly absolutely agree, and... For us, it almost felt like that didn't kick in right away. I know, for instance, X-Men kind of started feeling like X-Men to us, metaphor to an extent included, around the time that the all-new, all-different era started. We ended up actually skipping most of, of the Silver Age, and I'm curious as to your take on that, as to whether it was there, baked in, obviously, you know, obvious the, the themes were there from the start, but... Did that work early on? Did that work better as, say, Giants has X-Men hit and Claremont took over? Was it a more gradual thing? X-Men takes a
2: while to become what it is. For a lot of the 60s, it's a kind of second- or third-rate superhero team comic with a lot of potential and a lot of interesting stuff that is kind of bubbling up within it. But you're right, like, it doesn't really start making use of the metaphor until Claremont's been around for a little while, and even then it takes a little while to find its voice. For me, it really, really hits when John Byrne arrives. Like, even in the middle of that story, you know, the universe blinks out of existence and blinks back in around the Macon, around the Macron crystal, and boom, suddenly it's X-Men. <laughs> Before that, it's intimations of X-Men and reading it in the light of later X-Men, like what X-Men became, but as soon as it's Claremont, Byrne, Austin, it's all the things.
1: Very quickly, for listeners interested in going back to that point who don't have the the story on the tips of their tongues, that's going to be the Phoenix Saga. Yeah. Going on, one of the things that you talked about that I really, really loved was X-Men as less a novel or or a grand epic than than ongoing improv, just a, a, an ongoing game of yes and building this, this, this towering, bizarre patchwork edifice. And I was wondering whether that's something that you found specific to X-Men or saw any parallels in other books that have had long, long runs by, by single single writers or single creative teams.
2: Serial comics, superhero comics, just, just because of the way they're constructed, are always an ongoing improvisation to one extent or another because after the issue is sent to the printer, you can't take it back. You can't really form your shape of what 100 issues or a dozen issues or five issues are going to look like without something kind of altering the path. And you can't go back and fix that, but you can take what you've got and keep moving forward. One of the reasons that I love crossovers is because they are opportunities for Writers to riff on what each other are doing, to notice what somebody else is doing and figure out how to use that to accomplish where you want your own story to go. And when they're done well, like that's what happens. You can see, oh, oh, the fact that you've got an alien invasion going on here or, or, you know, a hostile takeover of the US going on here, I can judo that into something that makes. X Men or Spider Man or Ms Marvel or whatever, go where it needs to go. And that that's that's a wonderful thing. There are very few, very very long runs at Marvel by one single writer. There are a handful. Doug Minch wrote almost hundred issues of Master of Kung Fu. Peter David wrote, you know, a hundred and forty odd issues of Incredible Hulk. I think Dan Slott and Brian Michael Bendis have have this kind of ongoing rivalry for which one of them has written more Spider-Man stories. But even when Slot was part of the Spider-Man brain trust, there were four or five writers who were all working together to improvise on each other's additions to the story, to play with each other's subplots, to build things on what each other had written. And that's like, that's the jazz part of it. That's the paying attention and building thing. that That is the yes and. There are no novels in ongoing serial superhero comics. That's fine. I know Goodlum for novels. Yeah, I, I love
0: that, how you just get riff after riff after riff, and then eventually creators who grew up reading the original creators' work and have their own versions of that that they're creating as fans and as creators. I'm also always interested, though, in... I guess, the corporate executives who are part of the jazz band? Like, Marvel's a large company. These days, Marvel's owned by frickin' Disney. And so, I remember being interested, for instance, at the ebb and flow of, say, the X-Men and the Inhumans around the time Marvel didn't have the film rights to X-Men. Have you found other examples of that, where just what was going on on a corporate level or even a cultural level sort of impacted things creatively as well as you went through, you know, all of Marvel?
1: Or conversely, is there ever a point where it really didn't?
2: That's a good question. There are, there are, you know, the first decade of, or so of Marvel, it's really, like, five people you know, determining everything. It's Jack Kirby and Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and Don Heck, and then by the end of the decade, you know, Jerry Conway is there, Larry Lieber is writing the occasional story that's not a Western, Gary Friedrich and, you know, Denny O'Neill comes in for like three months before he decides that there are greener pastures elsewhere. But it's not that many people. Like, I just named basically everybody who was involved. And they were following their instincts. They were taking some directions from Martin Goodman, who was running the company at the time. And there are things that happened that are because of Martin Goodman's doing. There's always an economic aspect to what's shaping these, because they're commercial products. They were sold on newsstands. They there's, There is always some sort of person with the money to answer to, but that doesn't mean that a beautiful creative vision gets wrecked. You know, the classic story of this is, it is an X-Men story. It's Jim Shooter, the editor-in-chief of Marvel, coming to Claremont and Byrne when they're already past X-Men 137 when they're already doing the next story and saying like, no, you can't let the Phoenix live. You can't just let her off the hook for genocide. You need to go back and do five new pages in the next week before this issue goes to press and completely change the end of your story and completely change everything that comes after it. And in one sense, yeah, that's creative interference. That's Somebody with the editorial pen saying, like, no, you can't do the story that you were planning on doing. But what comes out of it is a much, much better story, as sometimes happens. Not always. But it's a thing to improvise around, again.
1: So we talked about the point at which the X-Men really coalesces the X-Men. Yeah. And I'm wondering, you know, you mentioned 1965 as a major tipping point. Is that when you really see the the Marvel Books coalescing as as a Marvel universe?
2: So there's a little bit of a joke that's not a joke, which is that the first time the Marvel Books coalesce as a coherent universe is two months after Fantastic Four number one comes out. and there's a big old crossover involving four or five different series. None of them superhero series. There are no superheroes involved in it. It is a crossover between Linda Carter, Student Nurse, Patsy and Hebe, Patsy Walker, Millie the Model, and Kathy the Teenage Tornado. They are all series about teen girls or young professional women, and they're all appearing in each other's comics with consequences in each other's comics. No superheroes involved. But at the time, that was a great big chunk of what the Marvel line was. It was comics about young women and some monster comics and this one weird throwback to the old, the, like, dead trend of superhero comics. Like, by 1961, superhero comics were old news. Like, uh, nobody really does those anymore except, you know, DC still publishing Superman and Batman Wonder Woman. That's, that's really... That's pretty much the size of it, superhero-wise. So it's these comics about the young women, and the, those young women stay in the Marvel Universe. They're still around. We're still seeing Linda Carter turn up. We're, we're, we're still seeing Patsy Walker turn up. She's an Iron Man every month now. So there's, there's that. 1965, though, is when the superhero comics start really talking to each other, instead of just being like, oh we're in the same universe, let's we can mention Reed Richards we can we can mention Tony Stark. That particular month in 1965 is when you know, part of it happens in X-Men. The Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver quit the Brotherhood of Evil mutants and in a comic that comes out a week later, Avengers 16, they, hear that the Avengers are radically changing their shape. They have a former felon, Hawkeye, who's just joined the team, and they write to see if they can join the Avengers too, because they want to have a you know new, new angle on things.
1: It gives us Cap's Kooky Quartet.
2: Yeah, it's the Kooky Quartet. It is Captain America and three you know, felons and terrorists as a superhero team. and that's a moment that Marvel stories keep coming back to. Like, there are lots of flashback stories set at that particular moment just because it's such a weird, fertile moment, and in the middle of that story, of that Avengers story, there's some business that crosses over with what's happening in the Thor story in Journey into Mystery and what's going on in Fantastic Four, and these are all stories that Jack Kirby was drawing. It could be Kirby who came up with it. It could be Lee who came up with it. No one else was in the room where it happened, as they say. So you're talking about, you know, these
0: these moments that keep uh, people keep coming back to, writers and artists keep coming back to. And that's certainly something we've noticed. You know, there are certainly a number of things in X-Men where, oh, look, it's another dark future story, which references days of future past. It's another story about the Phoenix, which is in some way going to involve resurrection.
1: And it's another cover, it's another cover homage to a cover homage to a cover. homage. Right,
0: exactly. Yeah. And so, I don't know, to us, it often seems like you have these early stories, some Silver Age, some Bronze Age, that pretty much everything that comes after is in dialogue with or sometimes doing their own take on. And I've kind of always struggled to identify a point where that started being a thing, where the recursion started being the thing itself. So I'm really curious, where are you, having now read all of it, like is that something that you even see at all? And if so, is there is there a point where that starts to be a thing?
2: Huh, that's a really interesting thought. I think it really happens when the second or third generation of writers come in to tell the stories, because you know, Lee and Kirby are not going to do a lot of callbacks to. You know, Don't you remember when this when we did this great thing a few years ago? They try very half-heartedly in Fantastic Four number 100, just as the Lee-Kirby partnership is breaking up. It's like, okay, we've got an issue with two zeros at the end of its number. Let's have, you know, everybody that we've ever had in the series come back, except they're actually, uh, they're they're really made by the puppet master. They're really just androids or, or you know, clay puppets or whatever. Amazing Spider-Man number 100 uh, similarly is the title of that issue is the summing up and right before it, at the end of amazing Spider-Man 99, like in a way that's kind of the end of the Spider-Man story or could be the end of the Spider-Man story. It is Peter Parker having reached a point of maturity. He's gotten a regular gig at work. He's thinking about proposing to his girlfriend. Uh, his attitude about crime has changed to the point where he's going on TV and talking about prison reform. And it, you know, it is it is kind of a moment of wrapping up that story, but that's not where the story could end, because when you have a successful franchise, it has to go on forever. So that's around 1970, 71. After that, we see... Stanley kind of steps away from things. Jack Kirby is gone, and we have a generation of writers and artists who have grown up on them. And... In some sense, they're they're waiting for Stan and Steve and Jack to come back. They're just trying to preserve things. They're trying to keep things as they were. And you know, Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and even the Hulk and Iron Man in the 70s are. There's very very little forward motion going on in them, and lots of homages to the past. Lots of you know, let's bring back this character from this story that I read and loved when I was a kid. Uh, we've reprinted, you know, Marvel Tales must have reprinted Spider-Man No More recently. We can do a scene of Spider-Man lifting up the gigantic heavy thing, or sadly walking away from his costume in the trash. Or we can have a Fantastic Four moment where they all put their hands and Ben Grimm's giant orange paw together. Uh, It's, don't you remember when we had this great moment? What's interesting is that at the time, a lot of the readers didn't recognize that moment because they were kids. The comics were out of print. They were not in collected editions. They might get reprinted once for a month, and then the reprint would be gone forever. There's no Marvel Unlimited. There's no way to, like, check something online. It's just living in memory. But once those issues come back into print and have come back into print a couple times it becomes a thing that is a lot of people's reference point. Specifically, actually, the moment where Spider-Man is lifting up the gigantic heavy thing, like, you know, he's, he's trapped under like a piece of like, canted metal and there's water dripping over him and he has to somehow lift this impossible weight off him to go save Aunt May or whatever. The first time there's really an allusion to that is around 1980 or so. It's actually in a Hulk story. Um, and it's the Hulk trapped under the same kind of shape. But by a couple of years later, that story has been reprinted three or four times. There's been two different Marvel Tales reprints of it. There's a book called The Best of Marvel Comics that was sold through J.C. Wow. That, you see, pop every... Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's got a puffy red cover, and you see it turn up every once in a while, this, this wonderful hardcover book that reprints the story. And suddenly, this has become a reference point for... A lot of people. So in the late 80s and the 90s, again and again, you will see Spider-Man under a giant fallen device, a giant hunk of metal that's the same shape with water dripping around him, having to lift it up and you know go rescue Aunt May or whatever, to the point where, you know, by the late 90s, there's one where he's in that position and he thinks something like, huh, I have the funniest sense of deja vu. Uh, there, there is even a little uh, allusion to that scene in Walt Simonson's Thor, uh, the scene where uh, Frog Thor is lifting up the hammer. You know, within my body is the strength of many frogs. Like that's a line from the original story. Within my body is the strength of many men. And Walt Simonson is doing that, knowing that there is at least some chance that some of his audience is going to recognize the joke that he's making.
1: This is a technique that I've come to think of as writing for Kurt Music. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had no idea that Thor scene was a reference to Spider Man. I'm I'm so excited to learn a new thing about Simonson's Thor run. That's wonderful.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, go back and look at it. You'll you will see it. Totally is that, uh, and eventually like this becomes like one of the classic moments of Spider Man. If you're being a momentist, if you're like, what's what Spider Man's greatest hits? That moment is. A greatest hit there's a bit of it that's in the video game from a couple of years ago there's a bit of it that's in uh, uh spider-man uh, not, not far from home what was it? homecoming where you know the the thing has collapsed on him and he's trying to lift it off and go come on spider-man come on spider-man that is the moment that lets people who are at least a little bit more spider-man literate than this is a new character to me go oh This is a connection. I recognize this. These people know whereof they speak. Um, That's good and bad. Uh, When Tom Favort wrote his manifesto for A Brand New Day, when that started in the Spider-Man books around 2008, one of the things it said, like, can we please stop just alluding to the same three or four Spider-Man moments over and over? So, Let's lay off the Spider-Man has to lift the big heavy thing. Let's lay off the Spider-Man has to rescue the woman falling from the bridge. Like, let's, let's give that a rest for a little while and try to come up with some new moments that we can allude to later on. And I'm curious to see where that's going. There are not a lot of those in the last 10 or 15 years that work quite the same way. Occasionally you'll see one pop up. Um, sometimes it is an infamous moment rather than a famous moment. There are lots of callbacks to Captain America's Do You Think This Letter On My Forehead Stands For France? Yup. Uh, but you'll see... Yep, there are still moments that people are making, but canons reinforce themselves. <laughs> The classic moment is the classic moment because it's the classic moment. Anyway, that's a long-winded answer to your question. No, that was a great answer.
1: I'm going to ask a broader question, and this is one that I imagine that you are going to get or have gotten a lot in interviews about this book. And from from readers of this book, one of the things—we we know one of, one of the axioms of the Jim Shooter years was every issue is someone's first. And one of the questions we get most most frequently from our, from our listeners and from from new listeners especially is, if you were going to start in this massive tangled continuity that is X Men, where's a good place to jump on? And as someone, you know, this is this is a question that I've I've found myself asking about whole superhero universes that I'm not really connected to because having gone this deep into the weeds in Marvel, I find, for instance, my DC is kind of limited to Starman and then all of the animated series. So. Conversely, to, to a reader who wanted to start reading Marvel Comics now with all of the reprints that are out there, with eBay, with you know all of Marvel Unlimited out there, um, and with the knowledge that, of course, everyone's going to have different tastes and everyone's going to have different different ideal jumping on points, what would you say is the most representative starting point for someone who wants to read Marvel and get a sense of what they're getting into?
2: Oh, good lord. Um, uh, <laughs> that is a really good question. It's a question that I actually kind of tried to tackle some in all of the Marvels. Uh, there's a chapter that's called Where to Start or How to Enjoy Being Confused. It is a gigantic, gigantic, gigantic story. There is no one clear path into it. There are lots of things that are kind of, Marked as entrances, anything with a number one on the cover is or should be, should be, it isn't always, but should be, a path in. But part of not just the experience of them, but the fun of them is being confused. And then finding your way out of that confusion. You find something that ideally somebody you know likes. You know, comics are a social medium. But from that, you're going to pick it up and you're going to miss a lot of what's going on. You're going to be perplexed by a lot of what's going on. That's unavoidable and it's okay. Just make a note of what the confusing things are. The confusing things will almost always be proper names. Proper nouns. Write them down. The story might explain itself. It might not. If it doesn't and you really want to know what something is, then go look it up. That will tell you what to look at next. If the story makes sense enough to have an emotional effect on you, even if you don't know what all the names are and what all the references are to, then it's working. If it doesn't have that effect on you, it's not working, go pick up something else. (laughs) In terms of where to start with X-Men, I mean, there's lots of people who... If, if you ask people, what is the first issue of X-Men that you read? You ask 30 people, you're going to get 30 answers. That's fine. Everybody was confused at first. Everybody had their own head cannon that they built. Everybody had their own ways of finding out what they were missing, or overlooking what they were missing, or just tabling those questions because they were already emotionally involved with the story and that's all that matters. You can go back to it and reread it later on. It'll open itself up to you. All that said, I really like House of X powers of 10. <laughs> like it's it is such a great introduction to the X-Men's world that is also just an absolute gift to people who have been reading X-Men already for 40 years and People who read X-Men pretty intently for 2 or 3 years, 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years ago, and then have been away from it since. Like, it's all of those things. That's kind of the magic of it.
0: Yeah, uh, House and Powers is actually one of the things that uh, got my father and an old friend of ours, Sam, uh, back into X-Men. It is magical in that regard. And for me, at least, I don't know, it's just, it's so new in a way that X-Men, and as we've been discussing, superhero comics are are not often new. Like, I noticed in, in your coverage of X-Men, you spend a long time on Claremont, and then touch on a couple brief bits here and there, uh, I think most memorably for me, Morrison's Run, and then House and Powers, and it just seems like those are the times when a creator just decided, hey, I'm not going to ignore what came before by any means, but let's see what else we can do. Let's not just do the X equivalent of Spider-Man lifting the heavy thing.
2: Those are the best. I love those. When somebody can figure out what's special at the core of something and how to treat it completely differently than it's ever been done before. That's, That's the magic of these ongoing franchises. When you can take this theme that some other writers, some other artists have done in the past and come up with something that it suggested to you, something that it inspired, not just calling back or you know, a, you know, doing it like Hank Williams would have done.
1: So continuing on the topic of recommendations. I'm wondering, and this is, this is a question for, for our listeners or on behalf of our listeners, but it's also one that, that I find myself asking a lot, which is that if I'm coming in, it's primarily an X-Men fan with primarily X-Men as my background. What other parts of the Marvel Universe? You know, the, 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 all, all the years of it, all the content of it, should I be exploring? I know Masters of Kung Fu is going to be on that list. Um, <laughs> but, like, where, where do you go from X-Men? Because X-Men, X-Men feels like such a destination point. Like, it's a place where people land and then get really attached and kind of stay. And it ends up Great. serving as a home base for a lot of readers. And I'm wondering what directions sort of you see obvious lines from it.
2: I mean, X-Men writ large is very much its own thing, and it's not really at all like Master of Kung Fu. It's a real, it's a real, real different kind of thing. But there are bridges from it. Um, Sword is very much an X-Men book and also very much a book about... Cosmic Marvel. It is a bridge over to what's going on out in outer space with all of these other things. Uh, The Fantastic Four is, when it's really good, a book about close family and extended family and different kinds of families. Uh, Identifying what your favorite things are about X Men, because X Men is so many things, is a really good way to. Find find other stuff you might like. If you like the idea of X Men as people who are broadly misunderstood trying to do good in the world, that's kind of the Spider Man story. That is kind of also the Squirrel Girl story. Uh, you were uh, Miles. You were talking about the the strange Inhumans balanced against X Men moment. There are points of similarity between the inhuman stuff and the x-men stuff and they're also very very different in some crucial ways. I will add though like during the moment where Inhumans was replacing X-Men and there wasn't a single X-Men book on the stands to be found aside from Uncanny X-Men and uh, Extraordinary X-Men and x-men blue and x-men gold and wolverine and old man logan and only wolverine and like you couldn't find any mutant books there weren't any being published except for the six or seven a month there were you know (laughs) fair point fair point
1: okay so so going more broadly then let's say what i'm into about the x-men is is it's a character-driven balanced ensemble
2: character-driven balanced ensemble i mean anytime al ewing writes a team book you're gonna get that kind of action like his new avengers his u.s avengers which actually was more or less a roberto it's and a sam story book. it really like it really is a, a stealth new mutants book um, his contest of champions was even kind of that except starring Outlaw, who was, like, a fifth-rate British Punisher knockoff who suddenly became this absolutely wonderful, compelling character in Contest of Champions, which was a comic based on a mobile game based on a comic, and, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, about, like, it, it is the classic, like, somebody has assembled a whole bunch of, you know, great fighters and is making them all fight it out, like, that's... It is the classic, like, let's just have everybody fight premise. And it's also, like, this sweet, moving, emotional, character-driven story <laughs> where everybody's just beating each other up all the time for the entire duration of the thing. I mean, comics, yeah. Uh, the uh, Kieran Gill and jamie McKelvey Young Avengers is... It's a thrill in a way that X-Men can be a thrill in terms of watching everybody's dynamics with each other. It's also visually absolutely astonishing. One of the things that it does is Gillen McKelvey decided that they wanted to have at least one action scene in every issue that didn't look like any comic book action scene before it. So they they're all like formally different from anything that you've ever seen on the page before. Uh, it's also really music obsessed in a way I love like the very first scene of the thing is uh Marvel boy, rhapsodizing over the run, that's Be My Baby.
1: Yes, close harmony girl groups.
2: Yeah.
0: So, Douglas, I keep thinking about continuity, obviously, that's a big thing that we're talking about, but something that occurs to me, you've looked at all of Marvel, and one of the things that makes Marvel, I don't know about unique, but certainly uh, notable, is that it has had one continuity like even the multiverse is still crammed into one continuity everything counts everything happens and then I think of something like DC which sometimes is that way and sometimes isn't it just keeps rebooting itself with different crises albeit you know they all still factor in somehow I don't know how does that how does that serve Marvel are there ways that that doesn't serve Marvel you know over these decades and decades and decades of all the comics you've now read
2: It's put Marvel in kind of an odd position in some ways. I think it's a beautiful thing. It's really, really valuable for storytelling purposes that there is this continuous 60 or 80 year history that you can draw on. You know, the real world's history doesn't reboot. It always weighs on the present and in Marvel Comics now, the past again, always weighs on the present and that makes their stories richer. It also makes it really hard not to repeat stuff. It also poses the problem of, like, how can all of these things actually have happened? I talk a little bit in the book about the sliding timeline, which is this genius invention that somebody came up with. So the clock of the Marvel story starts running with the Richards Group Space flight in a comic published in the fall of 1961. But 60 years have not gone by in the story since then. It's more like, you know, 14 or so years since then. So there are stories early on where John F. Kennedy is, present, is president. Uh, <laughs> what do you do about that? How do you account for that? The answer is the sliding timeline. Everything since then has happened in you know, 14, 15 years, something like that. And any temporal references to things that happened when the stories were published are topical references to backdate those stories to the point when they were published. So the Marvel story really started in, oh, like 2007 or so. That's when that's when the rocket goes up. That's when Peter Parker gets bitten by the spider. And if you happen to see references to Richard Nixon, like, no, that's a topical reference. That was That's just to, like... Inserted by the writers and artists to backdate the story. But roughly that happened. It's fine. Um, for the same reason that, uh, and boy, this is going to be way off topic. So about two weeks go by between the end of X of Swords and the Hellfire Gala in story. It's almost exactly 14 days. And in the middle of that time, uh, King in Black has to happen. And King in Black has to happen at Christmas time there are parts of that story that specifically involve like Santa Claus and a Christmas dip- display at the toy store like you can't you can't get around those and going by that timeline that means that the Hellfire Gala is not on the solstice it is a New Year's Eve party I will die on that hill
0: <laughs> that's delightful and that actually makes me like the story even more
1: I feel like that's that's such a good Good wrapping up point that I'm—and I'm, and we're, we're about out of time, so I'm going to go to the, the critical questions. Uh, how can folks get their hands on all of the Marvels um, if, having heard this, they come to the correct conclusion that they should?
0: That is, of course, all the Marvels, the book, not literally all of the yes. Marvels.
2: Um, be It'd be very heavy to carry. So the book, All of the Marvels, A Journey to the Ends of the Biggest Story Ever Told, comes out from Penguin Random House on— October 12th, as of, the day, as of the day we're recording this, it has been moved to October 12th because there's supply line issues in the publishing industry. One way to get it that I think uh, all three of us would endorse is to pre-order it through Books with Pictures in Portland. If you pre-order it through Books with Pictures, it will come with a special extra thing whose nature I am not yet at liberty to disclose, but you're going to be happy
1: we'll stick up a link to that pre-order um, in the visual companion to this episode, or, or in the main post, because I don't know if we're going to have a visual companion to this one.
2: Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's also going to be a release party at uh, Books with Pictures on release day, and various other things after that, but that's, that's, that's one way to get your hands on it, October 12th.
1: And where can folks find you on the internet these days?
2: You can find me on the internet at Twitter.com slash That's probably a good way to find me. I have an ancient site that needs updating. The other place to find me is on my own podcast, Voice of Latveria. The Voice of Latveria is a uh, propaganda news broadcast during the Cold War era from Latveria. It's also a weekly podcast where I talk to somebody every week about one of the stories in comics involving Dr. Doom. We're going through them all not in Marvel Continuity Order, not in publication order, but in the order that Victor Von Doom experienced them. What's the difference between the order Victor Von Doom experienced them and Marvel Continuity Order? The guy's got a time machine.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, I recall Onslaught coming very, very early for you.
2: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In fact... Jay was there to guide us through the onslaught moment that Victor Von Doom experienced around the time of comics published in 1962. Amazingly enough. Oh, no wonder he uh, has been a villain for so long, having to deal with onslaught. Jeez. VoiceofLotveria.com
1: We'll link to that as well. Douglas, thank you so much for making the time to join us. Um,
2: Thank you. This was delightful.
1: It was delightful to have you, and hopefully we'll be able to drag you back on at some point in the not-too-distant future to, to talk more in-depth about the X-Men end of things. But as, as you know better than most of us, there's a lot of Marvel.
2: There sure is.
0: And with that...
1: Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com.
0: New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com.
1: Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode along with original illustrations by David Wynn.
0: Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com.
1: Next week, we're back to the comic books, finally taking a long-overdue look at... Onslaught? The Wolverine solo series.